Well, happy apple season. Fall is the time for apples, isn't it? I mean, we eat apples, we bake with apples, and we even do a little apple bobbing, maybe. <laughs> apples were brought to America by the early colonists, and they were used for so many different purposes. In the early days of the apple world in, uh, on, on this property, on this land, there were at least 17,000 varieties of apples. But now, there are only 5,000. It's hard to believe. We're missing 12,000 varieties of apples right now. But don't worry about it. The apple hunters are uh, on the job. There's an actual group called the Lost Apple Project, and their job is to try to find these missing varieties. You know, they've got to, uh, you know 12,000 or so, but they're not doing that well. Since 2014, they've only found 29 <laughs> of the missing varieties of apples. We just don't know what we're missing yet, do we? My question is, maybe it's yours too, why are these apple varieties missing? Why are they, they lost? And the answer, according to the experts, is, well, they simply just didn't taste very good. They were harsh, they were sour, they were bitter. About the only thing they were good for is hard cider, and I have nothing wrong with that. So I'd like to get some of those lost varieties to try that hard cider. They're also hard to grow, these apple experts say. And so a lot of the professional growers, the commercial growers, didn't want anything to do with those missing varieties. There's a curator of the USDA National Apple Collection. Did not know we had one of those. And uh, this gentleman says, genetic diversity about these missing apples is part of sustainability. Each apple discovered carries a legacy, interesting genetics, and a unique story. Like people, every apple is unique. I love that concept. It's a message, every apple is unique, every apple is valuable, and Jesus takes that on, and he communicates to you and me today that you are unique, you are valuable. There's not one person who is not unique and is not valuable. And like apples, every person, every person, now think of the worst person. And hear me, that person is worth preserving. Yeah, that's my cup. <laughs> Jesus says this in a parable at the end of Matthew. In part of the parable, he says, the king will say, I'm telling you the solemn truth. That's really interesting way to put that. I think in the old King James, it says, verily, verily, yeah. Whenever you did one of these things, you feed, you clothe, you visit, to someone overlooked or ignored, that was me. You did it to me. Every person is valuable. Every person is worth preserving because Jesus tells us, in a sense, that person is him, is Jesus. As we treat others, oh gosh. You see, if I really believe that, I wouldn't be so mean 
And I wouldn't be so bitter. And I wouldn't be so judgmental. If I really saw Christ in people, I would not, I would, I would uh, have a change in my perspective and a change in my behavior. And that is what the theme I'm taking out of Dead Poet Society. This great movie is set in 1959. It focuses on the rigid routines and rules and routines of, uh, of a conservative preparatory school for, for boys called Welton. In this schools, the boys are pressured to conform by the faculty, by the headmaster, and by the parents. So, into this very stuffy, rigid, rule-based society steps Robin Williams as John Keating, and he just takes a sledgehammer to their comfort zone. Uh, one of the most iconic scenes out of this movie kind of explains what he's trying to do with his students in his literature class. Take a look at this clip. What will your verse be? The poem by Walt Whitman, O Me, O Life. Ask what it means to be human. What does it mean to live a human life? It asks these deep questions that we all ask when we are feeling like a lost apple. When we're feeling less than worthy. And it provides a very profound answer. Walt Whitman says, the answer to the question is that you are here. You are here. And you have a role to play in this thing called life. You have a verse. And then John Keating, the character, asks us each, what is our verse? What role do we play? What is our contribution? What will your verse be? I believe that the verse that Walt Whitman and Robin Williams' character, John Keating, refers to is the legacy that you and I will leave when we're gone. How will you be remembered? What will they say about you when you're gone? And the fact of the matter is, your body will be gone. How we see you will be gone. It's my belief that you will not be gone. Your spirit will just remain, but it will be in a new form. I'm learning that death is kind of like just your clothes have changed. If you're old and your clothes have just gotten worn out, they just don't fit anymore. They don't work anymore. And uh, dying is, we get to go shopping for new clothes. That's not a bad thing at all. But I, this body is not going to last. Our spirit will last. It continues. It will take on a new form. That's what John Keating, I think, tries to tell us. And it's pretty just graphic. We are food for worms, lads. Our bodies will go back to the dust but our spirits will live on. But when we lose somebody's body, it hurts. We grieve. And the grief never ends. It just changes shape a little bit. 
So we think about death. I think about death a lot because I am around death. I did a funeral for Denise's cousin yesterday. He was only 70 when he got a new change of clothes. What will we say about Bobby since he's gone? Makes me ask the question, what will you say about me when I'm gone? John Keating and Walt Whitman, I think, are calling each one of us in this question about what will they say about us when we're gone to be very intentional in our life, to be intentional about what we do and what we say while we are doing things in this body and things are coming out of our mouths. Many have found the best way to answer the question, what will they say about us when we're gone, by asking this question, how do I want to be remembered? What do I want people to say about me when I'm gone? And then live accordingly. The Apostle Paul, uh, in his letter to Timothy, the second letter, and I will just parenthetically say, many scholars really don't think Paul's the one that wrote that letter. It's There's some inconsistencies with that, but uh, let's just go with somebody was dying here and they were getting very reflective and they were looking back on people in their lives. And that's kind of what we do, I think, when we know we're dying. I've been with enough people who were dying to know that they become very reflective. And Paul is that way. And he begins to think about certain people. And he says this. He was in a prison. He says, only Luke is with me. And uh, he writes to Timothy, get Mark and bring with him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. That word helpful, I got down there at the bottom, the Greek word for that. And the main word is krestos. But the little prefix eu means an exclamation point. They didn't have uh, periods and commas and things like that in Greek. And so they emphasize the word by that prefix. He is super helpful. He is really helpful. He is so helpful to me. So as Paul is thinking about people who have impacted his life, he's thinking about Mark, who is so very helpful. He goes on, though. Well, Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will get him back for that. I think Paul's struggling a little bit. Kind of forgot what it was like when Jesus was on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I, I, I do wish all of us would uh, follow Jesus and not follow Paul. And I do wish we would all read uh, Paul through the eyes of Jesus instead of Jesus through the eyes of Paul. And, and Paul is a great help, but uh, I'm not sure about the Lord will repay him for what he has done. Didn't sound too much like Jesus to me, but I don't know. All I know is this. He said some good things about Mark, not, and he said not so good things about Alexander. I want to be Mark. I want you all to say good things about me when I'm gone. You want to be Mark, I'm sure. You want people to say good things about you when you're gone. So how can we ensure that people will remember us well and that what they will remember will be good things. Uh, a couple of things. Let's just resolve to live so as to be missed. 
And let's resolve that they'll miss us for the right things. Don't be missed because in your office you know how to run a tight ship. Why don't we work to be remembered because of our, our loving words and our kind deeds and our good laughter and our just demeanor of kindness and demeanor of love. This is a tough one. If we really are serious about being well-remembered when we're gone, well, let's just ask our family and our friends and our co-workers to, what do you think about me? Give an honest appraisal. You know, uh, what, is, what is one positive thing about me? And what is one, let's just keep it to one, <laughs> challenging thing about me? What's it like to interact with me? What's it like to have a conversation with me and to be with me? And if we're really wanting to know the answer to that, we're not going to be defensive. You've got to determine, oh my gosh, I'm not going to defend what they say about me that are challenging. We're going to actually accept what our friends and family and our coworkers will say about us. The most infamous, not infamous, but just the most popular, famous, what I think of when I think of uh, Dead Poet Society is Carpe Diem, Seize the Day, a quote by John Keating. Most of us, including myself, interpret Seize the Day as meaning, well, life is short, so grab all you can while you can. While you still have your body, grab all you can. And there's probably some truth in that, but I think it goes much deeper and uh, maybe to a more philosophical uh, experience. I think what it means, and it doesn't originate, obviously, with the movie. It uh, is around Latin philosophy for a long time. I think that what it really means to me, anyway, is it reminds me to make the most out of every moment. Make the most out of every moment. No matter what I'm doing, am I doing at this moment in my life the most of, of appreciating it, of being aware of it, of, and of being alive right now, instead of thinking about what I want to do later? Well, I'm not here later. I'm here now. So what can I do to make this moment the best moment for me and the best moment for you, if I'm with you at that moment. And so when I leave that moment, go to my next moment, I will say, well, dang, that was a good moment. <laughs> I want another moment like that. And every moment, just add those moments together. One of my favorite authors, most humans are never fully present in the now. Well, that's the truth, isn't it? Because unconsciously, they believe that the next moment must be more important than this one. But then you miss your whole life, which is never not now. My whole life is now in this moment. That's a lot of words right there. So I think Winnie the Pooh says it better. What day is it? It's today, squeaked Piglet. My favorite day, said Pooh. What moment is it? It's this moment, my favorite moment. I want to live like that. 
One way to live like that, and it's easier for me than it is for you, as I said a moment ago, because I face death frequently in my line of work. And I think facing death, for me, clarifies my life. And it clarifies all life. It clarifies humanity and human existence. The psalmist says, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to recognize the brevity, I guess, so that we may live each moment in a wise and loving way. On October 8, 2020, the staff at Little Rock Hospice Center wheeled my dad out of his room into the garden of that facility where he delivered his very last sermon in his body. The congregation that day consisted of the staff of the hospice facility and a few of his friends and my two sisters who were able to be there that day. I'm going to show you a clip of that, and uh, what he does on this clip is help me, and maybe it will help you to define life in the context of imminent death. When you know you're, I mean, when you got hospice, you're, you're, you're going to die. That's just it. It's a death sentence. And I, I so remember when the doctor called me and said, We're gonna, we, you've got a decision to make about your dad. And uh, death, facing death, helps us to clarify life. So this is my dad's last sermon, a couple of minutes of it. When I learned I had two weeks to live, my two grandsons came to me. One of them driving all the way from uh, uh, Nebraska, couldn't take it to Nebraska. <clears throat> and both of them said, Grandpa, what do you think about? when you think about having two weeks to die? <clears throat> That's a good question. I said, well, <clears throat> there's one thing I think about, and that is if I had my life to live over again, I would be more kind, more kind. That sermon dad preached was 24 minutes long. He couldn't breathe, but he could still preach. <laughs> I don't know if you're able to hear his uh, advice and his self-reflection in his uh, very, very weak voice. But what he said is if he had to live his life over again, he would be more kind. So you look back on 89 years of life, what could I have been or done differently? What lesson would I give you? Dad said, be kind. Just be kind. It's not a bad legacy, is it? Just to be kind. The Dalai Lama says my religion is very simple. My religion is kindness. I got to be honest with you. 
this is my statement, not the Dalai Lama's. But if your religion is not making you more kind, maybe you ought to get a new religion, just maybe. I grew up in a particular religion and a Christianity and a version of Christianity. And we weren't very kind. We were kind to people who were like us and in our group. We weren't very kind to the other at all. Nothing was wrong with Christianity, but it was certainly wrong with something wrong with the practitioners of it. Because the Christ of Christianity is kind to all, to the good and the bad alike. The rain falls on the good, the rain falls on the bad. The sun shines beautifully on the good, the sun shines beautifully on the bad. So then Jesus said after that, so be like your father, who's kind. Yeah, it's okay to change your religion. I've changed mine several times. <laughs> and it really is, if you just boil it down, I just want to be kind. I don't really have that much preference in these days to a theological statement. I think they're important if they're kind and if they're loving. I just don't get too hung up. I was asked a few months ago to debate somebody who didn't like me, who was disagreeing with me and thought I was heretical to debate the doctrines. And I said, you know, just go ahead and put out on Facebook that I'm a heretic. I don't care. I just want to be kind. And if, if I'm an atheist, but I'm kind, then I'm, I think I'm okay with that. Yeah, I, I did say that. Yeah, he said, you really are a heretic, aren't you? I said, yeah. <laughs> but I'm a, I'm a nice one. I'm a kind one. No. Kindness, I think, really is the most important legacy we can leave. Maybe even more important than our retirement fund and our property or a business or whatever. I don't want people talking about all of that. I don't have that much. I just want them to say I'm kind. And you know, we all don't have IRAs and businesses and properties to, to leave behind. But we do all have the ability to be kind. Every one of us has the ability to leave a legacy of kindness. You know, I could probably retire right now and just... Because that's all I'm going to say the rest of my ministry. Just be kind. Damn it, just be kind. <laughs> I don't know why we just can't be kind to people. I don't quite understand that. I didn't put this uh, early enough to Whitney to send to Whitney who does our slides. Thank you, Whitney. Always do such a good job. Thank you, Whitney. But... Uh, at the beginning of Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount, after his Beatitudes, 
he, he says to us, let your light shine so that people will see your good deeds and not brag about you, but the, the word see there is a Greek word that means that people will be motivated and they will be impacted. They will be inspired or a churchy word. They will be blessed. But our good deeds are to not so people will look at us, but so they will be helped and inspired and a light shining in a darkened world is what our good deeds will do. And thereby, he said, glorify love, glorify God. So let's do that.